The God of Mischief is back and better than ever. Loki. 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 Wow. Great to see you again. Critics agree. Loki season two is marvelous. Great. And it's finally here. How much do you know? Let's assume I don't know much. A mind-bending adventure. Spectacularly cinematic. I've been waiting for a moment like this. It surpasses all expectations. A little over the top, don't you think? I thought it was spot on. Loki Season 2. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. You are listening to Habs and Minded. Brought to you by HabsEyesOnThePrize.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Absent Minded. This is Patrick Bengtsson speaking and I'm based in Sweden and there is thunder going around. So if you hear anything in the background, you know what's going on. I'm joined today with one of the Habs Eyes on the Price fantastic experts. We joined Eyes on the Price together and we're still in it. Uh, we're both looking for houses, by the way. So if anyone knows something, just, you know, let us know. Uh, Andrew Sadaransky, thank you for joining us. Hey, Patrick. I'm very, very happy to be joining the podcast once again, and uh, great to talk to you again. You're on TSN every Sunday, so is the podcast really that much of an excitement anymore? Oh, of course it does. It always, it's always fun to come back to the source. Like, I will always uh, fly the eyes on the prize flag proudly. You know, it's TSN's, uh, you know, I'm on TSN 690 once a week on Sunday mornings, but uh, eyes on the prize is where I kind of... Uh, leave my shoes at the end of the day uh, what is it it's five or six years now for us isn't it it's six years coming up in august uh, six yeah six years believe it or not we've been uh we've been associated with this website and you know they still keep us around for some reason i don't know i don't know we're doing something right yeah well it's either that or our food takes are are still all right you know <laughs> Well, we're here. It's the day after last night's game, uh, the end of the road for the regular season. What is your take on the regular season for, for the Montreal Canadiens, Andrew? Uh, well, it, it, first of all, it was a difficult season for everybody, for all the teams, for all the players, for all the coaches and officials. It, it, was, a, it was a challenging season due to the conditions that were imposed on them to just have the season in the first place. You know, the world is still in a pandemic. We're still kind of in, in, in stay-at-home, especially here in Ontario. You know, the players have been away from their families for a long time, some of them at least. Um, you know, it, it's just been a mentally straining year, not to mention a physically straining year, especially for, for a team like Montreal, who have their a condensed season paused because of a COVID uh, scare. Um, so... There are not, the final month of the season was extremely busy for Montreal and extremely physically taxing. Um, there's a lot of players that had lingering injuries, a lot of players that uh, were basically running on fumes to end the season. Uh, Montreal was spared of any kind of major injuries for the majority of the year, but really this last month took its toll on Montreal. Um, the results were accordingly, you know, the, the results were according to, to that kind of mentality that, you know, players were very tired and, results weren't as great as probably we fans expected at the beginning of the season. You know, I think expectations were high for Montreal this year. I think, you know, everyone kind of uh, was hoping for them. I mean, everyone assumed they'd make the playoffs, but at least in a, you know, first or second place in the division. Uh, and they ended up, uh, you know, just crawling in in fourth place uh, the last couple of games of the year. So 
Uh, I think the regular season mercifully is over. And I think overall uh, the grade for the team would be below average, um, just given the expectations we had, but there were definitely some standout moments. And I think uh, last night's game, we really saw, um, you know, the young kids, the next generation, um, showcasing what they may bring to this team in the future. Talking about Nick Suzuki having a fantastic end of the year. Cole Caulfield surprising many with how easily he's adapted to the NHL. Um, Jake Evans making a very, very good argument uh, as to why he should start in the playoffs. These are all young players that, you know, given the sort of veteran reinforcements that Mark Bergman picked up, um, you know, you figure they wouldn't be in the conversation for the uh, playoff opening night lineup. And yet I'd be very hard pressed to scratch a Cole Caulfield or a Jake Evans at this point uh, over favoring a, a veteran. Now, now we know hockey culture and hockey mentality where the veteran will probably get the benefit of the doubt and get to play game one, assuming they're healthy. Um, but it, it comes down to the coach actually having to make a difficult decision and not an obvious one. So in general, um, to summarize the season, below expectation, but very promising future um, with, with a slight asterisk uh, next to Jesper Kotkaniemi's name because um, we, didn't have, we haven't seen that growth in his game this year. He's in his third year of his contract. Uh, and, you know, should we be concerned that the best year of those three years was the first one? And then we've seen a sort of... Uh, declined since then so you know the the jury's still out on him but um you know definitely a lot of youth have risen to the occasion yes Barry Kotkaniemi um maybe has stalled I am we saw someone that had stalled and and was rushed into the NHL in the opposing lineup last night yes and is it the same thing that we sort of see with Jesperi Kotkaniemi, when he has been rushed, I've spoken to scouts, I've spoken to coaches here in Europe, and everyone said he was the best player, uh, the, the best center at that position when Montreal took him. It, they're clear cut about that. But all of them has said something along the lines, I'm surprised he made the lineup opening night because his skating wasn't up to scratch. Uh, he will never be uh, the skater that Jesse Ullinen is. He will never be the skater that Cole Caulfield is. But he might have benefited from, well, Essett had a terrible year of the, day, the, the year after, but they could have put it in, in the AHL. Uh, they could have um, let him mature a little bit more slowly because we mentioned on this podcast, and I think everyone is aware of it, NHL is not a development league. So if you rush players in, then you might suffer for it later on. And, and is this the case with Jesper Kotkaniemi? Hopefully not. He's still very young. He's still, I believe, the sixth youngest player in the league. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong there. But uh, at an age, he's still at a, at a young enough age where he's in his prime development years. So if it was a case where he was rushed, if it's a case where organization thinks it's best for him to st- take a step back, then um, they still have that, that luxury and that opportunity, given that, you know, in his first year, uh, there wasn't a lot of options at center. And, you know, he probably was uh, uh, one of the better options for the center position in his rookie year. But now you see the ascension of Nick Suzuki. You see the ascension of Jake Evans. 
Uh, you know, you assume that Philip Dano is going to stay with Montreal for a few more years. Um, then, you know, you have Ryan Paling who potentially can make a case for himself next year. You know, there is the opportunity to take a step back with Jesperi Kotkaniemi. Um, but at the same time, you know, he's already a three-year in the NHL. And you start developing some certain habits and some certain projections in terms of what you're. But but you, you mentioned Nick Suzuki, you mentioned Jake Evans, you you mentioned Paling, but all of these have had a slower rate of, of getting into the NHL, and and yes, and that's what I'm getting. At. We're seeing the success of these players that, and even Cole Caulfield that has taken two years off before he joins the NHL. Um, Jesse Ullinen is on his way. Uh, we see it on other players and other teams as well. Not everyone should go directly in. And let's remember, Jesse Puliyarvi, he needed a couple of years. He even went back to Finland to get out of it all and restart. And now, obviously, he plays with um, McDavid. So it it's a little bit easier. But he's putting up numbers. He's really, really good. And he's matured in those years in, in Finland. Absolutely. And to use and use an example of, of recent Montreal history, you have the same case with uh, Alexander Galchenyuk, who, you know, missed his final year of junior due to an injury and then found himself in a prominent role in Montreal. And, and it was the same thing where his first year was successful and very promising. You know, he had that 30 goal season, mm-hmm. but then you saw the gradual decline. And the, the thing is, you know, why is there a gradual decline for these skilled players who come in early? Um, and it, it could be the, the expectation being set on them. It could be a lack of maturity. It could be many factors. I mean, this year, Isperi Kakanimi, for example, um, saw his best friend be shunted aside uh, and not used by the organization in Victor Mete. How close were they last season? You know, they were kind of like social media darlings with their like, you know, minty fresh combinations. Uh, and now, you know, Kakanimi had to see his friend um, have uh, have kind of a, a season where he was set aside by the team. So I'm sure that had a bit of a, of a psychological impact. Uh, the dip from his family, his family, that probably had an impact. Youth, maturity, uh, experience, also just general life experience, all of that had an impact on his play. Um, you know, he basically became a different player when he put on all that weight. He put on a lot of muscle to adapt to the physical nature of the NHL. Uh, and I think since then, he's not been the same player, which is interesting. Yeah, I, I've, I've mentioned it, and I, I think we've spoken about it, you and I, or at least in the chat as well, that maybe he put on too much weight. He he raised the center of gravity in his body, and he hasn't really been comfortable in that. And he looked comfortable in Liga when he got the chance to play in Liga those eight games earlier this season. Uh, and, and he has obviously distributed his weight a little bit, uh, it put on put put them on, on the legs put more muscles on the legs and and it's benefited his game i think but we know nhl isn't a, a development league not everyone can be an austin matthews and come in and dominate from from the get-go not everyone can be a mcdavid it let's face it even someone like rasmus dalin who was very well prepared didn't shine directly and and he's struggling now as well a little bit in his third year Yeah, very true. And it's just like, I remember um, our, our, our friend Shimon Schemberg from Sweden, from your native country, had an uh, interesting tweet uh, slash thread on Twitter uh, last week where, you know, focusing on Jesperi Kotkaniemi, he, he kind of displayed data on 
the the consequences of rushing European prospects to the NHL. And really the conclusion was that um, it is more detrimental to their development to rush them than it is to keep them in Europe playing a couple of more years and bringing them over when they're, you know, about 20, 21 years old. And, uh, you know, he falls into that category of players who were brought in early and given a lot of responsibilities and a lot of spotlight. Uh, and, you know, hopefully it doesn't impact him long term. Indeed. Uh, we saw the future, as you mentioned last night, against a, a let's face it, a, an Edmonton Oilers team that was lined up perfectly. It, it was the A team, whereas Montreal is their B or C team. And and uh, it came away a draw. Um, Cole Caffrey even had the first chance of the of the uh, overtime. But on the other hand, it went directly the other way and... and uh, I forgot who scored, but Montreal at least got a point in that game. It was a dead rubber, uh, but on the other hand, the youngsters showed up and 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 really made sure they they were seen and wanted to be counted, and and show the impact they can have in the playoffs or or down the line for next season. Uh, which brings us to to really what this what, why I asked you to join me because you are everything that comes down to the CBA and, and, and to the contract situations and money in, in, in our chat and in our group. And uh, looking at the expansion draft, can you just explain the, the, mm -hmm. the different things that you can set up your team and how you can protect different players in the, in the, in the draft? For sure. So we know that the expansion draft to welcome the Seattle Kraken to the NHL is happening on July 21st. Um, before then, um, I believe earlier in the month, uh, every team needs to submit their list of protected players. So every team can either protect seven forwards, three defensemen, or one goalie, or they can protect eight skaters, which is forwards and defensemen in total, and one goalie. So if you want to not, uh, if you want to protect, let's say, more than three defensemen, you can go the eight skater route, but you are sacrificing two protected players. So I, I believe it was the Islanders that did this route last time when Vegas was entering the NHL where they decided to protect four defensemen. Um, so it, it is a feasible strategy depending on where you believe your strongest assets are. Um, players with no movement clauses must be, um, must be protected unless they've accepted to waive their no movement clause, but they're under no obligation to do so. Uh, I, I believe we heard that Milan Lucic is going to has already uh, agreed to waive his no trade. So certainly Milan Lucic is a guy who sounds like he will be exposed in the expansion draft by, by uh, Calgary. Who are the um, uh, no trade clauses in, in Montreal's organization? In, in Montreal, we have, um, let's see here. I believe we have Brendan Gallagher, we have Jeff Petrie, and we have Carey Price. So one player in each position has their no, uh, no motion clause. And they have until July 16th to agree to waive it. Um, I don't think Montreal will be asking any of those three to waive their no motion clause. No, and, and the, the one thing that makes this interesting is the one guy that doesn't have the mo no moment clause and that has had a little bit of a uh, roller coaster season uh, and not to jump in. But, but goalkeeper wise, who would you protect except Gary Price, as you mentioned, that he, he will have to be protected? You'll have to be. I mean, there, there's been a lot of talk online that you know they Montreal should ask Carey Price to waive his no motion. 
uh, or no movement rather, uh, just so they can protect a, a, a Jake Allen. I mean, the, the goaltenders that risk being exposed, there's only two. There's Jake Allen and there's Michael McNiven. Um, I mean, you're probably going to have Charlie Lindgren, who's going to be unrestricted free agent. He'll be exposed as well. But don't expect um, UFAs to be selected too much by, by Seattle. Why would they select a unrestricted, an up, up, uh, upcoming unrestricted free agent when you know, they can lose them within a week? Um, Seattle can pick UFAs and RFAs from, uh, from other teams, but overall, they must, out of the 30 players they pick, 20 must have contracts for next season. So if you do think exposing your UFAs and RFAs is a strategy, well, there is a risk that Seattle will pick one of those players. Yeah. But if you weren't, if you weren't going to protect Carey Price, I mean, Jake Allen is the most likely candidate to be picked by Seattle. So that's your kind of strategy to protect your backup forward. Yeah, indeed. And, and, um, We've seen the future goalie of, of the franchise in some ways with uh, Paling, but uh, or uh, Primo, but Primo. It, does he need protection as well? No. So any first and second year professionals and any unsigned draft picks uh, don't need to be uh, protected because they're not eligible to be exposed. So we're talking about Ryan Paling, we're talking about Cole Caulfield, um, Ryan, uh, Nick Suzuki, uh, Alexander Romanov. Caden Primo, uh, Caden Gooley, all of those kind of big name prospects are not eligible to be picked by Seattle and therefore don't need to be protected. Yeah, and and uh, moving on to the defenders because here is where it gets complicated. Shea Weber doesn't mm-hmm. have a no trade clause. Correct. They, they could um, elect to expose Shea Weber or they could elect to not protect him. It's... It's a difficult conversation to have with your team captain. He does have a very um, untradeable contract. He has a very non-cap friendly contract. Uh, it's six more years left on his deal. And, you know, we've seen him start slowing down. Now, if you do expose him, you do risk the, you know, it depends why you expose him. Do you expose him as strategy, assuming that Seattle won't pick him? Or do you expose them because you don't, you know, you're willing to lose him to to ex- the expansion draft? I don't think Montreal is ready to give up on Shea Weber. I don't see why they would, given that he's their their captain and kind of, uh, you know, uh, locker room leader, if you will. But you know, the option is there. Um, you know, you have if, let's say they go with the traditional seven three one protection pattern. Um, you know, you already have Jeff Petrie protected, um, but because of his no motion clause. And then you have two more spots to use that one spot on Shea Weber uh, and the other one on, um, on Edmondson. That would leave Ben Sherrod and Brett Kulak exposed. So, you know, or do you expose Shea Weber assuming that Seattle won't pick him and then you protect Ben Sherrod? I, my personal belief is that they're going to protect Shea Weber just out of principle. Because what message does that send when your captain is unprotected? Um, they're going to protect Jeff Petrie. And they're going to protect Joel Edmondson. So that's going to leave Ben Sherratt and Brett Kulak as your two exposed uh, defensemen who meet the criteria. Very, very interesting. And and the fact is also that it wouldn't be the end of the world if you lost one of those players because the pipeline of defenders is really, really strong in Montreal's case. 
Uh, absolutely. I mean, we already have Alexander Romanov is already playing regular minutes, and and he's gonna be a, he's gonna be a, a, you know definitely gonna be in top in top six if not your top four, and potentially can can replace a Ben Sherrod if Ben Sherrod is picked. Brett Kulak, you know, for all that he brings to the team, um, is uh, is is replaceable. You know, and you have Caden Gooley coming up. You do have Josh Brook coming up. Um, you have options in that, in that regards. You have Kale Fleury as well, who did who had a rough season in Laval, but hopefully uh, bounces back next year. So there's ser- ser- several options to replace any player lost on defense. We remember that for the Vegas draft, they lost uh, um, Alexi Yenelin, and, 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 they, and they filled that spot decently. I mean, the bigger loss for Montreal that year was losing uh, Andre Markov rather than Alexi Yenelin. So, you know, th- there are players who can take um, the role that Shara was playing. And really, at the end of the day, Mark Bergevin's off-season job is to find a partner for Shea Weber, who can probably complement him a bit better than Ben Sherratt could. So Ben Sherratt is almost um, extraneous to the, to the lineup for next season. Is, would, would, would we see Shea Weber a little bit like a first-pairing defenseman. He is slowing down. He is struggling in certain areas. Is it down to move him down the lineup, maybe even to the third pairing? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think it comes down it comes down to uh, player matching. So I, I don't want to say top pairing, second pairing, third pairing. It's just the type of opposition you match him against. Um, you know, obviously players can beat him with speed uh, by going around him. So what you want is players that are more of a of not necessarily finesse in skating, but more players that attempt to dump, chase, and grind along the boards. With those kind of players, Shea Weber can keep up. If it's a, a speedy forward, um, then Shea Weber's in more trouble. So, you know, it'll, it'll come down to player matching for him. And, uh, you know, I think we can kind of easily say that those speedy forwards probably get more minutes than the, the grindy types. So if you want to kind of rank him in terms of Uh, on ice utilization, he probably will have less, a bit less minutes than Jeff Petrie next year. Um, and so that kind of puts him second pairing, if you want to, if you want to give that title. Yeah. Um, moving on to the forward uh, group, um, obviously Brendan Gallagher needs to be protected. Um, Cole Caulfield doesn't, mm-hmm. neither does Nick Suzuki. Um, maybe the, the interesting players here are, are, what happens with Dano, what happens with the Tatar, and also Byron Lekkonen. Uh Absolutely. I mean, it, it comes down to this. Uh, like I said, UFAs can be picked. RFAs can be picked. Um, you're less likely to pick a UFA, but if there's a really enticing um, up, up, upcoming unrestricted free agent that you think can be part of your top line, let's say, Um, a little bit like William Carlson in, in the Vegas draft, right? Exactly. And, and there is the requirement to expose two forwards who are you know, under contract for next year and have played at least um, 28 games this past season. Uh, it's normally 40, but it's prorated down to 28. Or 70 games in the past two seasons, or prorated, prorated down to 54. So Montreal has the issue of having to expose players that meet a certain criteria in, in my kind of the way I worked it out, obviously Gallagher must be protected, but then you, you're, you will protect uh, Josh Anderson. You will protect Jonathan Durant. You will protect uh, Tyler Toffoli. Um, you will protect his spread. Um, 
Um, and that's when it gets kind of interesting. I have Arturi Lekanen protected, and I've also protected Philip Dano, even though he's in a pending UFA. Uh, I think Dano is, un was, is an underrated player for Montreal. He's the player that shuts down Connor McDavid. He's the player that shuts, shuts down Austin Matthews. Um, he may not be putting up the points. He may not be, uh, you know, flashy and, and particularly uh, draw the eye on the ice. But he's a player that I think is, has significant value for you that you want to protect. That leaves me with um, uh, Paul Byron exposed. And that leaves me with Jake Evans exposed. So, you know, we talked about him earlier as being one of the young guys that really impressed and kind of really uh, made a name for himself. Uh, unfortunately, those two players for me are, are the two players that are going to be exposed to meet the, uh, the criteria of, of the two forwards that must be left unprotected. Uh, it's interesting because obviously Seattle needs to get to the, to the cap floor as well. Um, and there, mm -hmm. Paul Byron might, with his contract, um, fill in a little bit. But Jake Evans is on an entry-level deal still, right? Um, yes, I'm trying to remember if he's finishing up his entry level deal or if he's still on it. I think, I think he's, uh, if you give me a second here, I actually have uh, cap friendly open the good people at cap friendly, fantastic site. Oh, but, um, where is he here? Jake Evans. He's got one more year in his contract. It's no longer entry level. So he signed a two year deal after his entry level contract. So he's got one more season, one more, one more year next year on his contract. He's definitely uh, a young player who can draw interest from uh, Seattle. And, and same with Paul. Paul Byron could be, could be a little bit more on the expensive side, but he brings a lot of speed. He brings a lot of um, shorthanded penalty kill skill um, and has that kind of contract that may bring him to the, to the floor if needed. So certainly there's a lot of things that are possible. I also left uh, UFAs like Thomas Tatar and Yoel Armia uh, exposed. Um, they don't meet the, the exposure requirements of having a contract, but they can be picked by Seattle um, if they want. And same with Charlie Lindgren. But these are players that more, more than likely will hit free. Could you see Mark Bergevin striking a deal with the Kraken in order for them to pick a certain player? Because that, that is what that, that is what Vegas did mm -hmm. and, and forced some Absolutely. teams to, 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 to yeah. work that way. Absolutely, it's it's absolutely possible. Um, if if I was the Montreal Canadiens, you know who is the player that I would expose with the understanding that Seattle would not pick them. Uh, that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting conversation to have. Who like if let's say uh, Mark Bergeron really likes Jake Evans, well he tells Seattle, please don't pick Jake Evans. Pick uh, pick Paul Byron just to help us out on the salary cap, and we'll trade you. Uh, uh, like uh, another another prospect, I'd say, like, we'll trade you a Kale Flurry for a late draft draft pick, for example. Um, there, there's a deal that can be made there to protect a certain exposed player, or a Ben Sherrod if Montreal doesn't want to lose Ben Sherrod, or more than likely a Jake Allen, um, who's you know I think out of the players I named. So just to review who I'm exposing: um, Jake Allen, Ben Sherrod, Brett Kulak, Paul Byron, Jake Evans. I think Jake Allen proved himself as an excellent NHL goaltender this season. In Seattle's, you know, will might want to build from the net out. So Jake Allen is a, is a good option if Montreal wants to keep him. Well, they're going to have to sacrifice something. 
more than just the players exposed, they're going to have to, you know, sweeten the pot. So then are you, are you giving up on, uh, on another prospect like Kale Fleury to protect a, a Jake Allen? It's very possible. And, and there are certain prospects that will draw an interest. We got Norlinder as an example in, in, in Sweden. Yeah. Uh, I hate that obviously, but, but I can see that, you know, if, if there is this price to be paid mm. and with the log jam that is going on a little bit in Montreal's uh, D line, you can, you can definitely see one of the D's being, you know, that player that you want to move on. I don't think it will be Norlinder. I know how high Montreal is on him. But it's it's a very interesting concept to to work around as well because first and foremost you have this the two different ways you can expose players or, or keep players under control and then you also have this where we saw what Vegas was doing very very well when they forced teams to give them a second round pick or a prospect or two. Uh, Uh, another defender or I think they cornered the market on the defenders didn't they in 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 that year so they could get more draft picks because other teams needed all the defenders exactly I mean the, Seattle does have to meet a minimum number of players per position in their in their um, expansion draft but they have a bit of leeway as to you know there's a certain like I think there's four or five undefined positional slots they can pick with whatever they want. So Vegas, yeah, they went defense heavy. And we know that uh, Alexi Yamelin didn't even play for Vegas. He got traded to Nashville right away. So, you know, they may do that again where they see value, like trade value in certain players and have conversations with certain GMs. Maybe there'll be a GM that calls them and says, hey, by the way, I want this player. Can you pick him and I'll trade him for you? So that's what happened in Emlyn's case, most likely. There's, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of conversations happening right now in the background where people are kind of, you know, preparing, you know, kind of, what do you want to call it, strategizing before the poker game. Um, and it, it's, it's going to be fun. I think I really like the concept of the expansion draft. I, I don't like the idea we're going to lose a player, but thankfully it's just one player. Um, and, you know, and I think it'll be, it'll be fun to see a new team in the league next year. Yeah, and and when was the was it uh, July the twenty first? So the um, draft, the, the the original draft has been as well. So you could even trade one of those players that for to to make sure you you have your own players or the team that you yeah. built this year that you kept keep the core. You can give away one of the players from from the twenty twenty one draft. Which brings another Absolutely. dimension as well. There's a lot of possibilities here, and a lot of uh, there'll be a lot of um, a lot of things to negotiate for the, the Seattle GM. He has a very much an upper hand. Uh, an incoming GM like this has basically a blue ocean strategy as to how he wants to build his team. And Vegas was extremely successful at it. Can you see um, the Kraken being as successful when it comes to to the playoffs in their first year as well? I, I think that NHL GMs have kind of learned through experience um, what to do and what not to do in these expansion drafts. I mean, a lot of the same GMs are in place from the Vegas draft. So they kind of realize potentially their mistakes. I think Montreal played the last expansion draft very well, but there's other, um, other teams that uh, did not prepare correctly. Um, Florida, for instance, uh, really made a huge mistake exposing Marshall. So, and 
and, and protecting other players. So, and William Carlson was another player that probably should have been protected, but wasn't. Um, it'll, it'll be interesting. Uh, it's, it's hard to predict how this, will, uh, how this will come out, but I think Seattle will have, you know, the, the quality of NHL players these days, the quality of the depth of each team is so good that I would not be surprised if Seattle has a competitive team right out the gate. It's what happened for Vegas, where they essentially picked up what, they, what other teams thought were their depth players. Um, and, and Vegas has been competitive since their inception. And it's not crazy to think that Seattle will be um, competitive right away because of that same concept of the quality of the depth of the players they'll be picking up. And it's also very important, I think, for, for Seattle, partly because of, of the, for the fans, but they will step right in to a derby in, in many ways with the Vancouver Canucks uh, right from the mm -hmm. get-go. Uh, it's, uh, it's a straight between them and, and uh, um, I would assume a, what it could be, a two-hour boat ride, three-hour boat ride and, and you're, you're in the opposing team's town and it will create that atmosphere that we probably have seen in, in European um, hockey arenas and football arenas Uh, the price are obviously different, so, so maybe not. You get you you might not get the fan clubs in the same way, but we've seen the fan power in with with the uh, eyes on on um, the European uh, Super League in football, and it would be nice to see mm -hmm. something like this happen in in among the fans in uh, in NHL as well and create real fan sections. It'd be interesting for sure. I mean, NHL, I think, picked their expansion markets very well. I mean, Vegas has been a tremendous market for them, and it's been called one of the best, you know, player or uh, uh, visitor experiences for an NHL game in the league right off the bat. Uh, Seattle is showing that same passion with kind of their um, local twist on things, being very environmentally conscious, having a, a emission-neutral arena, um, anyone with a ticket can take a public transportation ride for free to the arena. They're, you know, they're being very Seattle about this whole thing. And I think because it speaks to their local town or local city culture, uh, they'll be quite successful as well. Uh, so you'll have that, that, those fans that will be passionate for the team. And yeah, you're right. Vancouver is just down the road. There's coming in a natural rivalry built there for sure, because they're, they're, they're neighbors. I mean, how many, How many Vancouverites travel to Seattle? How many Seattleites travel to Vancouver? You know, I'm, I'm sure both cities are, are, are sick of the other tourists being there. So they'll have a nice little rivalry there. Um, and, and, and the kind of having the fan sections and traveling around. And, you know, I, the NHL doesn't really encourage fan sections. They, people just kind of buy tickets online from Ticketmaster and you kind of sit where you sit. And it would be interesting to kind of bring that element of, Of, of fan sections and bringing your your home cheer to the to the away team's arena that would add uh, some some additional atmosphere but it's, it's something that the nhl hasn't really um strived for i mean not very little teams have a fan cheer in the first place to kind of export to other arenas yeah we can't really go so, all, over, all over the place right it's not really that cheer as well or go habs go it's it's, it's classic but yeah uh, You don't have the these football clubs, what you say, not very uh, youth friendly chants every now and then. Right, fair enough. Um, you know, <laughs> the, it's not it's not the youth friendly. Yeah, football chants are all over the place. I just saw a feature yesterday on uh, 
Ajax in, in England having three little birds as their fan chant, which I think is really cool, playing a, a singing a Bob Marley song yeah. as, as part of their fan chant. I, I think that's amazing. Um, you know, you, you don't see NHL fans picking that up. And I don't know why. I don't know why uh, public engagement is not more prevalent in NHL as opposed to, to football or, you know, I can't think of another sport like football where the, where the, the fans are so engaged. You, you um, see, but in, but in you, the, see in that, you see that with um, the fans in the hockey in, in Europe as well, because it's so close to travel. And, and it's sort of, because it's the away traveling that makes you bond as a group and then you keep going that yeah. way. And, and uh, in one way, that's why a, a team in Quebec would have been awesome because it's, was it, a two-hour train ride, right? And from, from Montreal. Yeah. And uh, I know Mats Maslund, he used to say that you, you, put, you, you got on the train to play Quebec and you, it, was, it was like being home and uh, it was something you, look, you, you looked forward to in some ways, but you also hated it because it was that kind of rivalry that you lived for, but you dreaded it if you lost. And, and I think that is, that is the thing that you can easily get from, from you know, a cross-border rivalry, uh, two very uh, similar kind of teams. One is being built from scratch and one is in a rebuild in many ways. Yeah, so, you know, it's not, not much of a rivalry. Both teams are kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel, but it'll be interesting. I mean, I, I think Vancouver would be very frustrated if they are struggling, but Seattle is doing very well right off the bat, I think there'd be a lot of, it'd be a physical rivalry because of the uh, potential frustration level from Vancouver. So that, you know, the, the, the opportunity is there. And, you know, just like they, they say in business, if there's an opportunity, you, you know, you have to explore it. The NHL, it'd be, it'd be interesting for the NHL to explore fan sections, especially for, for close rivalries or close hometown rides like that. Uh, I don't see why they wouldn't do that. I don't see why, like, you know, for, for instance, let's say, um, New Jersey Devils are, are going to Madison Square Garden. Why, why wouldn't Madison Square Garden sell a block of tickets to the New Jersey Devils? And then the New Jersey Devils can then uh, sell tickets to their fans for a road trip to Madison Square Garden to sit in a New Jersey Devils section. You know, we've seen Ottawa suppress um, uh, opponents, player or teams coming in or fans coming in. Remember during the playoffs when Montreal was, you know, basically louder than Ottawa fans in Ottawa, and then the owner came out and they kind of they, you know, they kind of suppressed Montreal play, uh, fans buying tickets like out of out of out of uh, area code ticket sales, you know, that kind of went against that whole concept of having the the fan section. So, I don't know if the NHL wants that to be honest. It's they, they love their homogeneous uh, product. They love how you know every, everything is essentially the same. I don't think they like variant too much. So to introduce a fan section in certain arenas or, or welcome kind of a more raucous atmosphere of, a, you know, uh, a competing chance, then I don't know if the NHL is, is ready for that yet. I'm here with Andrew Sadarnowski. Uh, he's A. Sadarsky on Twitter. Make sure to follow him if you don't, because he has more followers than me. Uh, but also you can find him on Habsent Minded as a guest, TSN 690 as a guest, but more regularly, um, you're a father of two, so not as often anymore, but, but you do write for Eyes on the Prize, and we're proud to have you, and I'm proud to, to call you my colleague, because uh, it's been a fun ride these five and a half years, and I'm looking forward to maybe five and a half more. Absolutely, Patrick, it's been fantastic, and uh, 
can't wait for the playoffs to get going. Go Habs, go. Yeah, and uh, the schedule just came out. I, I can see that. Um, <laughs> what is it? Uh, so Thursday, May the 20th, Montreal at Toronto, uh, 7.30, uh, puck drop. That would be the first game. And uh, yeah, I might have to take Friday off from school. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Uh, Montreal is, uh, what's it? Uh, Down Goes Brown just mentioned that Leafs has never won a game in franchise history on May the 27th or later. So according to history, Montreal needs to win at least one game. And then they sewn up the series before that, uh, after that. It's going to be interesting. Are we going to do predictions now or are we going to keep that for a future podcast? We are going to keep that for a future podcast and a future article that I assume you just will write because you're the best. Thank you guys for listening. Oh, well, thank you so very much, Patrick. It's Andrew Sadonovsky and Patrick Bexel signing off. Uh, hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure to follow us on Twitter. Make sure to follow uh, Ice on the Price and uh, subscribe to the podcast at the end. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.